Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December the 15th, 2017, and it is what day? It is Friday! 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 That's right, it is time for the Monster Show of the Week, the Expert Council Q&A. And as we're getting down toward the end of the year, I have a monster lineup for you. Eight questions for Expert Council members, I believe today is it eight and seven. Seven! Seven! Questions plus me, that's eight total. We have uses for wild lettuce extract as an herbal remedy from old dock bones. We have getting pectin to do its thing when making jam and not leave you all unjammed with Erica Strauss. We have using GMRS radio for backup communications with Tim Glantz. We have choosing the right steel for a knife with Magic Rorman. We have finding the right WordPress theme with Nicole Sauce. We have dealing with Leos that escalate versus de-escalate situations from Dan Omen. We have more on rocket mass heaters from our buddy Paul Wheat, and I have thoughts on accusations and the and the court of public opinion. And in other words, how you're treated because you're accused of something versus how you're treated based on evidence. That's actually becoming a really important topic, and somebody wrote in from a very personal standpoint about it. And when I, when I read off these expert counsel shows, I think of the movie Gladi Gladiator. Are you not entertained? I don't know that there is a show out there that can bring you the variety that we do, and I'm, I'm really happy that we're able to do that for you. Anyway, before we uh, get into all this stuff, let's get a little perspective in history in the year that was the episode. Actually, we, well, I, I, I'm still saying that, huh, guys? We haven't done that for like, I don't know, 80 episodes plus, and I'm still saying it. I, it's thousands, over a thousand shows that I call it that, right? We're not tied to the episode anymore. The year that was in history, uh, we are up to the year 82 right now. We have Invading Scotland. The governor of Britain, Acrola, has spent the last five years subduing Wales and also marches into Scotland almost unopposed. This year he raises a fleet and establishes a large fort north of modern-day Perth. The Caledonians, the Scots, are a loose collection of tribes and haven't put up much resistance. A chieftain named Caligacus manages to unite many of the tribes to fight off the Romans. In the middle of the night, they attack a fort which is garrisoned by the Ninth Hispania. The Caledonians burst into the fort, and uh, a de in desperate hand-to-hand -hand fighting continued for some time. Agricola received word and was able to relieve the garrison with cavalry reinforcements, preventing the possible destruction of the legion. He responds to this attack by pushing further north, but is hampered by Domitian, who redeploys several units from Britain to Gaul. Domitian is officially in Gaul to take census, but is actually on a mission to gain military glory for his own. My take by David Verne, Scotland was the end of the world for the Romans, and they were scared by it. Without modern satellite images, they had to rely on their own scouts and local guides to map the new terrain. The historian Tactius says that the Roman soldiers were terrified by the thought of monsters lurking in the mountains or druid curses cast by vengeful tribespeople. Whenever the Romans ventured beyond their borders into the wilderness beyond, their campaigns became an exploration mission as much as an invasion. Yeah, definitely. I, you, you almost wonder, like, couldn't you, if you were Rome, can't you just see that maybe you've, you've gone far enough? That unless you're being attacked from these things beyond your borders, that you're probably better off. As we've seen throughout these history segments, what made Rome such a successful empire was that they didn't go in and rape and pillage and burn things to the ground. 
they they went into a territory, they took it over, they allowed quite a bit of self-governance as long as there was no trouble, so to say, and eventually they would give citizenship maybe not to the people they conquered but to their children or grandchildren. And in 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 this type of situation where you have something that that uh, with a, a government with so much military power, a group of people seeing the empire advance might just prefer to be part of it rather than to fight it. But if you go charging into uh, you know the outer ranges of your empire where you're at the limits of your support capability and you don't know where you are and you you know that works at the beginning when the empire is small but the larger it gets the more extended you become and sooner or later if you extend far enough not only will you be pushed back to where you should have stopped you'll be pushed back to where you started hmm if you can't draw a correlation between that and what we do in the world today I don't know that you're paying attention, and I don't know me pointing it out for you would help you. Anyway, with that, before we get into today's show, let me remind you, if you like the show, you want to support the work that I do, uh, make sure that we're always here to bring you shows like today's. The way to do that is become a member of the Member Support Brigade. All you got to do to do that is go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on Members, and you can sign up there. Lots of different ways to do it. It comes out to about 20 cents an episode. And with that, let's go ahead and uh, get into your questions for the expert counsel. Remember, the way to send a question in, go to thesurvivalpodcast.com. And I'm sorry, send an email to Jack at the, I'm off today, guys. I'm sorry. Send an email to Jack at the survival podcast.com in the subject line, put TSPC expert in the subject line and tell me who the questions is for, which, which question, you know, which expert is for, and then give me your question in one or two sentences, hit the return key a couple times, give me the details. That'll make it a lot easier for me to sort it out get it off to the right expert, make sure that there's no missing information and things like that that they might need. And if you want to know who our experts are, uh, just go to today's episode. And you'll see a link that says Meet the Expert Council. And click on it. You can see all of our experts and the things that they're experts on. First question today uh, for an expert council member is on wild lettuce extract and the uses of wild lettuce medicinally and herbally for old dock bones. With that, hey, bones man, take it away. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the 2017 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. This week's question is from Gunner, who writes, Question for Doc Bones. Is wild lettuce extract a legitimate, effective herbal pain relief medicine? If it is, what are the safety concerns or recommendations when using it? Thanks for your great podcast. Gunner, surviving behind enemy lines in the People's Republic of California with a K. Gunner, wild lettuce extracts come from the leaves, sap, and also called latex, and seeds of Lactuca verosa, a wild leafy plant. People self-describe wild lettuce extracts as a medical aid for everything from asthma, coughs, joint pain, and also insomnia. Lettuce sap, which may also be called lettuce opium, may have a recreational use as a sedative and as an anti-anxiety agent. Certainly in times of trouble, you're going to have anxiety as a big issue for the survival medic. 
Indeed, in the 19th century, when opium itself was not available, many people took to using wild lettuce extract. Unfortunately, hard data for the use of wild lettuce extract for pain and other medicinal uses is pretty scarce. What you get instead is somewhat vague recommendations for wild lettuce for a wide range of issues, including things like whooping cough, asthma, urinary tract problems, cough, hardening of the arteries, insomnia, restlessness, painful menstrual periods, sexual disorders, muscle and joint pain, and the topical treatment to kill germs. So the best I can say is that some people swear by it, but the data just isn't there yet. Bottom line, your experience may vary. I also have to say that there's not enough scientific information to determine an appropriate dose for wild lettuce. Wild lettuce seems safe for most people in small amounts, but large amounts can slow breathing and might even cause death. There are also risks of allergic reactions in people who are allergic to ragweed also, and complications in those people who have prostate problems and also glaucoma, elevated eye pressure. Also, you should not take this with sedative, as it may over-sedate you. This is Joe Halton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our Survival Medicine Handbook, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. What I get out of his answer is that the claims that it is a sedative and claims that it is a painkiller and claims that it is similar in its actions to opium are basically valid. But that some people have turned it into like snake oil and it, you know, cures everything. He's got cancer. Yeah, give him some lettuce, you know. Um, and I would say it is definitely something to explore and use with caution. But it is one of those things if you use a little bit and it works and you use a little bit more and you can kind of get a feel for it, it may be really valuable. I also think with all of the, uh, kind of hype around it, you know, it, it could turn into another one of those things that the government decides we got to do something about it. It's 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 it's, it's an opium, and people are going to die, ah, even though it's been used for thousands of years, just like so many other things. Anyway, uh, next up, I have a question for Erica Strauss. This is one of those kind of things where I'm glad I've got experts because I don't know. I I know all about canning. I don't know about canning jam. I don't I don't make jam. I'm not a jam kind of guy. Uh, so we got to. Listener with a problem with her watermelon jam. Erica, take it away. This is Erica from Northwest Edible Life calling in this week to answer Jennifer's question. Jennifer writes me, Hey, Erica, I made five pints of jam out of our last tomatillo harvest with only one cup of sugar and the prescribed amount of pectin. It turned out great. But then I tried to make some jam from a watermelon from our garden. The powdered pectin label cautioned me against making a large batch, but I made all 11 cups of jam at once, resulting in seven pints of jam. And my watermelon jam didn't set. So that got me thinking. One, was this because I didn't use all 11 cups of sugar that the recipe called for? I only used six because the watermelon jam was already so sweet. Or is this just the way pectin works? Two, how is pectin made? If one wanted to make pectin themselves, how involved in it? And three, what is the science behind jam or jelly making? 
Well, hey, Jennifer, that's a lot of questions. For time, I'm probably not going to be able to answer every aspect of your question, but I will try to get to the heart of it, which is why did your watermelon jam not set up and what's up with pectin? Well, first, pectin is a carbohydrate, a special type of carbohydrate called a polysaccharide. Pectin is found in the cell walls of plants and is most concentrated in the skins and cores of fruit. Some fruit, like citrus, naturally have a very high concentration of pectin, and some fruit, like strawberries, naturally have a lower concentration of pectin. Ripe fruit is lower in pectin than underripe or green fruit, and most commercial pectin is made from the rinds of citrus. Now, when naturally occurring or added pectin gels, a jam or jelly, what's happening is the pectin is creating a web of these pectin carbohydrates that hold moisture in a kind of matrix. So you can think of this as a zillion pectin molecules all holding each other's hands in a giant interlinking ring. But if the conditions aren't right for the pectin to create this fragile, lovely web, instead of reaching out and holding onto each other's hands, the pectin molecules instead will just kind of hang out solo, hands at their side, separate and dissolved and not reaching out to make contact with their fellow pectin friends. So if there's no molecular hand holding on the part of the pectin, you get no pectin matrix, which means no gel and a runny jam for you, I'm afraid. So what conditions are needed for the pectin to effectively gel. Well, the pectin would honestly really prefer to hold hands with water molecules more than other pectin molecules. So in order to convince the pectin that it really wants to join up and make that matrix with the other pectin, we have to do a couple things. The first is to reduce the available moisture in the jam by cooking the jam down appropriately to drive off excess water. The second thing is to give the water something else to link up to other than the pectin. Now, water loves holding hands with sugar. So if you add enough sugar to a jam, the water will hold fast to the sugar molecules instead of to the pectin molecules. That sort of forces the pectin out into the world. It leaves the pectin a little sad and lonely and more inclined to look for new pectin molecule friends to hold hands with. But there's just one issue. The pectin at this point is pretty shy and doesn't really want to meet new friends. There's kind of a lot of chemistry around why, but a little lemon juice will sort of encourage the pectin to go out and play with his fellow pectin friends. That's because this little bit of acid in the form of the lemon juice chemically changes the ionic structure of the jam enough that the pectin molecules are far more likely to join hands with each other and are less likely to be repelled from each other. And when the conditions are perfect, these pectin molecules will bond very strongly to other pectin molecules, creating that lovely matrix we know as a well-set jam or jelly. At what we call the gel point, the sugar, acid, and total moisture ratio of the jam allows those pectin molecules to create a jam that's, well, jam and not syrup. Typically in jam making, the fruit, sugar, and acid, almost always lemon juice, are mixed together in specific ratios and then cooked together to a specific temperature, usually about 220 degrees Fahrenheit. At this point, the sugar concentration, the moisture level, and the acidity are right to allow the pectin to do its cross-linky thing. So, all right, Jennifer, let's talk about your jam specifically. If you're following a box pectin recipe, it's typically pre- 
pretty important to follow the recipe closely or you're unlikely to hit that magic sugar pectin acid gel sweet spot as you unfortunately found out with your watermelon jam. And it's even more complicated than that because some fruits are more finicky than others. Watermelon jam is tricky at the best of time because watermelon is very high moisture, very low in natural pectin, and very low in acid to start with. So all of the components that are necessary to create a good gel have to be essentially added to the watermelon. Your tomatillos, on the other hand, are quite high in both acid and pectin, which means that the natural properties of the fruit itself, the tomatillos, is much more conducive to a great gel, even in situations where you don't use pectin at all or where you reduce the sugar level. Now, based on what you told me about cutting the sugar more or less in half for your watermelon jam recipe, I think the major culprit was simply that you had too much free moisture and so that pectin matrix couldn't cross link. It's also hard to rapidly cook out moisture in a jam where you have a large batch, where you've got a double or a triple batch, but mostly I suspect the lack of the full sugar in your jam just left too many free water molecules so the pectin stayed in suspension instead of linking up to create that pectin matrix. In the future, you have a couple of options. One, you can add a ton more sugar to force the moisture into a bond with something that isn't pectin. Now, I don't love this option because, like you mentioned, it does end up creating a painfully sweet jam, and watermelon is already so naturally sweet. Two, you can cook down your watermelon juice and pulp substantially to drive off enough extra moisture that the sugar content percentage of your jam hits something that will gel. Now, I'm not a huge fan of this option either because I don't think that the best fresh qualities of watermelon really come through uh, after extended cooking. Three, you could use a non-sugar activated pectin. Pomona's is one common brand that's very reliable. Now, these type of pectins use a slightly different process to create a gel. Instead of relying on a very high sugar content to tie up all that uh, excess moisture, there is a reaction that forms with a type of calcium that creates the gel. So if you want a lower sugar added but still very fresh tasting watermelon jam, I think a non-sugar activated pectin like Pomona's is going to be your best bet. Four, and this is going to be a little bit more of an experiment, but you could add additional natural pectin sources and acid in the form of citrus and cook your jam until you hit a gel point. For each quart of pureed prepped watermelon, I think I'd take about two and a half cups of sugar and two or three large whole lemons. I'd slice the lemons crosswise into slices about half an inch thick, and then I'd pick out any seeds and drop the lemon, which has the rind and everything on it, into the watermelon and sugar. I'd bring everything up to a simmer and cook until the mixture reaches a gel point. Okay, one last tip. It's a good idea, especially if you are going to play around with sugar quantities and ratios in jam, to learn how to do a reliable gelling test so that you know if your jam is going to set up before you go to the trouble of processing it. The easiest option is stick a plate in the freezer and drizzle a little bit of your jam that you think is done on that plate and let the jam cool. If the jam, when it hits the chilled plate, sets up, it's done. You can push the jam, and if it mounds up in front of your finger as you push it, you'll know it's done. But if your finger slides right through the jam like it's syrup, even on that cold plate, you are going to need to continue cooking your jam until you reach the gel point.
This test is really not hard once you learn to do it, but if you're a visual learner, just go onto YouTube and do a search for how to tell when jam is done or gel test, and you will find good video examples that demonstrate this. Okay, guys, that's it for me. This has been Erica Strauss for the Expert Council. You can come say hi anytime at Northwest Edible Life, nwedible.com. If you love what I do, I put out a ton of extra content on Patreon, patreon.com slash nwedible for my supporters. And uh, you'll see every post I write go up on Facebook at facebook.com slash nwedible. So that's a good place to follow along. Thanks very much. I sure appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jack. Thanks, TSP community. And I will talk to you guys in a couple of weeks. See, and this is what I love about what we do with these expert council shows. I'm not a jam kind of guy, probably not going to be canon jam tomorrow, but I now understand the process, the chemistry, and the situation, and it's very possible that even if I never make a single jar of jam in my life, that information might be usable to me in something else that I'm doing specifically with food. And, and that's that's the beauty of the diversity of these shows. And I, I should pause for a second and say we should really thank, as we come toward the end of the year, all of the expert council members, because these guys go out of their way and do a lot to help us. So just kind of a thought there, maybe a, a whole bunch of people commenting and saying just thank you to all the council members might be a cool thing. Anyway, next up I have a question for Tim Glantz from Old Grouch's Military Surplus on using GMRS radios for backup communications. Hey there, Jack, and all you TSP listeners. Tim Glantz here with Old Grouch's Military Surplus and amateur radio operator W4WTF. With an expert cancel uh, question and answer. And question comes from Brandon, who's asking about GMRS radios. And uh, he asked, uh, is a GMRS radio a viable alternative for backup communications? Uh, and uh, he's building a uh, Ford Bronco into a prepper-type vehicle. And he's looking for something that uh, he can use with his family that has more power uh, than some of the other options and uh, asked if GMRS is a, a good alternative for that. And, uh, Brandon, absolutely. And now let me say right away that you've got it right. You're talking about real GMRS radio and not these little bubble pack combined with family radio service. Say they talk for 180 miles and can barely talk down the block little radios that you see everywhere. True GMRS is actually a licensed service from the FCC, allows you to run uh, – up to uh, 40 or 50 watts, I believe. Uh, most of your radios you're going to find are going to be 40 watts uh, in the UHF band. Uh, you're not going to see much difference there, as opposed to the little half watt or maybe two watts that those handhelds are. And of course, I'm talking when I talk to those higher wattage ones of mobile radios. And you can use, uh, they make good quality radios you can use on GMRS that are five watt handhelds. And I'll get a bit more into that here in a second. But yes, absolutely. Uh, a GMRS radio usage does require a license. However, uh, as far as licensed radio services go, it is one of the best bangs for your buck and effort. Uh, one of the biggest distinctions, well, two biggest distinctions between it and ham radio as far as licensing goes. Number one, there's no test. Uh, you simply fill out the application and you pay $70 for a 10-year license. So $7 a year, uh, which is a heck of a deal. And the other distinction is a ham radio license, that call sign is issued to you and you alone. Only you can use it. A GMRS license is applicable to you and your immediate family or your immediate household. So that means your kids, your spouse, uh, you know, parents that they live with you, all those people can use your GMRS license. One application, one fee, whole family can use it. 
And that is a huge thing for, you know, not just uh, prepping use, but everyday use also. Uh, and, as I said, you can use higher power on these. Uh, Brandon sent a link to two uh, Midland consumer radios, the MXT400 and the MXT115. Uh, very similar radios, but the 400 is a 40-watt as compared to uh, the 115 is a 15-watt. Definitely go with the 40-watt for your application. And also uh, pay a lot of attention to getting a quality antenna to use with it. I, I do not like magnetic mount antennas when you start getting to uh, UHF, although uh, it can be an option. But honestly, if you're building this Bronco as a dedicated vehicle, go with an NMO mount that is drilled into your roof. Uh, they're very easy to do. It is much more secure. It will work much better because you're getting a good ground connection onto the vehicle body so it serves as a better ground plane. And it's not going to get knocked off easy. Uh, you can look up how to do an NMO mount. Uh, you know, a lot of people get a little apprehensive about drilling that hole into the roof. And on your Bronco, make sure you drill it into the metal portion of the roof, not the fiberglass but it will work much better. There's a reason you don't see any professional radio installers with uh, uh, things like fire, EMS, and police radios or anybody else using mag mount antennas because uh, for this application, they're just not where you want to be. But what I would look at doing is absolutely that Midland looks like an excellent radio there for a 40-watt radio. It's it's $250. Uh, so it's a little, you know... It's, as two-way radio go, that is not a bad deal. Another option you can look at is uh, visit a local two-way radio shop and ask them if they have any uh, UHF radios that were taken out of service uh, from police or fire departments that they can program on GMRS for you and have them program them up. And a lot of times you can buy those for even less, especially some of the ones that were taken out of service uh, because they don't meet the specs for what the public safety agencies need now. Uh, those guys are often willing to sell those pretty cheap and program for you. And so often you can be out the door under $100, $150 for a quality Motorola or Kenwood uh, commercial radio that will have a lot of service left in it. Uh, so that's the other option to look at. And also go talk to them on the same time and ask them about handheld UHF radios, some of your public safety grade stuff that they can program up on GMRS channels. Uh, there's some debate over whether it's technically legal to program a commercial radio on GMRS, this, that, and forth. Let me tell you, the FCC is not going to bother you for doing that. Uh, they got much bigger fish to fry. The other option, and I'm going to send Jack a link, is to look at uh, buying for your handhelds some of the radios that are commercial-grade radios that will do GMRS as well as ham and other stuff so that later on you've got the option to do that both. Uh, particularly, I would look at uh, some of the DMR radios like the... Uh, uh, Titera MD390s or 380s and some of those that uh, you actually get a DMR digital radio. You can still program it to do your analog GMRS and all that other stuff. And they, they're under $100 and they're going to be a lot more rugged than some of your other options. So, yep, you are definitely looking in the right direction for something that uh, is easy to use and uh, can get the whole family on board, uh, especially because GMRS radios, when they're set up right, they're very easy for anybody to use. Uh, you hand them a radio, you say go to channel one, push to talk, release to listen, and there's nothing they can mess them up. It's not like handing somebody one of these Chinese bail things where if they hit one button wrong, they're going to get into an odd menu setting and they're probably not going to figure it out again. 
and then the radio is probably going to break on them anyway. Uh, so, yeah, look at that. And uh, if you need any more help or clarification or help choosing uh, a good antenna, uh, feel free to email me. Uh, email's on the website at oldgrouch.com. And one last thing to also consider, uh, you're looking at this uh, for uh, talking back to the family. One of those radios with a good base antenna and hooked to a good battery bank for backup would also give communications from the home. Uh, a good base antenna fed with good quality coax up as high as you can get it will get you pretty good range on a 40-watt uh, UHF GMRS radio, uh, especially going to a vehicle like that. Depending on the terrain where you live, you're looking at anywhere from 10 to, you know, if you can get that antenna up high enough and you're in a flat area, uh, 30 or more miles sometimes. And so uh, that could be pretty important if you're in a try-to-get-home situation and you've got family members at home and you need to communicate. So uh, that's another way you can utilize these radios. Uh, great question. I hope that helped a lot and uh, uh, helps you get on uh, the right path here. And as always, Jack, uh, thanks for a great show, and thanks for having me on. All right, and I do have links to all of the uh, stuff that Tim was talking about there, and I also have a link to the radio, the primary radio that the uh, individual was asking about, the actually the better one, the uh, 40 watt. And I mean, just put it in perspective a little bit. I could be wrong. I might have forgotten here. It might be five watts. I believe the maximum output a CB radio is supposed to have is four watts or something like that. Um, or most CB guys have things on them that they're not supposed to, and generally nobody does anything about it to amplify that. But uh, 40 watts is, is quite a bit of power to be putting out with a radio. So they are quite utilitarian, especially when set up the way Tim was talking about. The one thing to always remember, though, is that not only is GMRS uh, public frequency, somebody could be listening, there's a lot of this gear out there. And it, there, you always need to act as if it's possible that someone just that doesn't even care uh, is out there listening because there's a lot of this gear, a lot of it's sold over the counter in, in sporting goods stores and stuff like that. And uh, a lot of times, I think this is one of the things that people forget about with radio communications. Just because you're out of a range to hear them doesn't mean that they're out of range to hear you, if that makes sense. So somebody goes out and buys some cheap, crappy gear, you know, they have about 5 or 10 watts of power. The box says the range is 2 miles, but it isn't. They're 3 miles away. You're banging off a well-mounted antenna. You're 5 miles away from them. They could be talking to their friend about seeing a deer in the woods, and you'd never know they were there because they don't have enough power to get to you, but they have enough receiving capability to hear you. So just because you hear no activity on a channel doesn't mean you're not being listened to. Just you know, and I want to throw another thing out there. I think everybody in this audience should do for their family. Every, get everybody's smartphone and get them to install Zello. Set up a family Zello channel. Make sure everybody knows how to use it. If you can get people using it on and off, that's fine. Set it up. But set it up private. It's more private. Set up as a private Zello channel than radio will ever be. I'm just telling you. And just have it for emergency purposes. I'm a big fan of having some sort of radio communication because Zello requires functioning cellular networks and or Wi-Fi uh, or, you know, Internet access. But it is there, and generally that's one of the last things to go is your cellular networks. So 
I think it's an incredibly valuable tool, and it even could be fun on the holidays, and that'd be a great way to get training done. If you could just get everybody to turn their Zello channel on on Christmas, for instance, that would give everybody training, and they wouldn't know they were getting training, and so if something go catastrophically wrong at the regional level or what have you, you can just, you know, maybe one mass text, everybody jump on Zello, and everybody knows how to use it. Um, I know that Zello will not replace what you know, radio frequency technology can do when everything else isn't available. It can't. That's The reason that ham radio, the GMRS, that CB still exists is because systems fail. If systems didn't fail, those technologies would have been gone the day that the cell phone got as good as it is today. But those systems do fail. But it also means we should use them while they're here. Can't say enough good things about how valuable Zello can be. And again, even if you don't want to get on our Zello channel with TSP and all that stuff, it's a good thing for your family. It's free, and you can set it up private, so it's only people that you let in. Next up, I got a question for choosing the right steel for a knife build for Patrick Rorman of MT Knives. Hey, guys. It's Patrick here with MTKnives.net coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. First of all, I'd like to say I apologize for being a piker. Jack would uh, say that I've been being a piker, and I've been so busy I haven't had a chance to do the expert counsel in quite a while. But, uh, hey, I'm here doing it today. Uh, today's question comes from the Vancouver guy. He says, hey, Patrick, what would be a good steal to make my first knife? I'm looking to make a full tang skinning dressing knife. What would you consider as a good steal for such a project? I have access to a fairly well-equipped shop and some time. Also, I'm debating making my own micarta scales for the handle. Your thoughts. Thanks. Vancouver Guy on Zello. Well, I thank you for your question. Um, I'm not sure if you're referring to forging a knife or doing stock removal or buying a, a blank. So... There's different levels of uh, what you could do. You could buy a blank that is already made, and there's lots of them out there, readily available and rather cheap. Um, if you're looking to do stock removal, then you know you're talking about grinding that blade and heat treating it, and all the other stuff involved with stock removal. And if you're talking about forging it, well. There's uh, all that as well. I'm going to answer this for all three questions. So I'm going to start off with forging. If you are going, if you're looking to forge a blade, what I actually would recommend is starting out with some rebar or railroad spikes. <gasps> yes, I said it. Rebar or railroad spikes. And this is the reason because just like anything, it, it looks easy until you actually get out there and you start heating up some steel and, and hitting it. And then you realize it's really difficult to get that steel to do what you want it to do. So <clears throat> start off with something that is cheap and readily available until you can fashion it into something that you're okay with carrying around and telling people you made. <laughs> and then, um, Use some good steel and do it again. So I would say for forging, 
something like 51, uh, 5160 or 01, 1095. Any of those are going to be a good steel to start out with. Once you have some practice with the hammer and you get that knife where you want it, forge out your steel and then just a down and dirty real quick and easy. Um, you're going to have to harden that steel. So you're going to have to heat it up, take it past the critical temperature, make it non-magnetic. You can test it with a magnet. Uh, this is pretty primitive knife making here. And then quench that blade into some oil, some vegetable oil or just whatever. Use motor oil. It don't matter. Especially for your first knife. You can get all into having the right quenching oil, getting, uh, actually putting a, a temp gauge in your forge and making sure your forge is just the right temperature. Um, you can make this as complex as you want or as simple as you want. Now to test that blade to see if you properly hardened it, you can take a file and uh, that you know the hardness on and skate it across the edge of that blade. And if it cuts in, if it bites in, your steel is softer than the file. If it skates across the blade and doesn't really cut in, then your blade is harder than the file. At this point, you're going to want to uh, then pull a temper, take some of that hardness back out of that blade. And I'm not going to go into all that right here, but so that is your basic down and dirty, get a forge blade, get it hard and uh, make it usable. Be sure it's preferable to drill your holes in the handle of that blade before you uh, harden that blade. Uh, that's a mistake that a lot of first timers make and they burn up drill bits and yeah, it's not good. Moving on to stock removal. Same thing with stock removal. Uh, starting out as you're starting to learn how to use a grinder and shape that blade the way that you want it. I recommend just taking some regular mild steel, uh, getting comfortable with your grinder, getting a good profile that you like and practice grinding in the bevels. Um, there's no sense in starting out with some knife steel and ruining it. Get your practice in on some cheap mild steel. After the stock removal, you're going to have to heat treat that blade. And if it's a stainless blade, there's a lot of things that go into it. So it's best probably to send that off to somewhere like Peter's Heat Treating or some other heat treating company. They're going to charge you a premium for heating only one blade. Uh, a lot of them have a flat charge for, you know, up to 10 or 12 blades and then it gets cheaper from there. The most simple method is buying a, a blade blank that's already been ground, heat treat it and ready for you just to slap some scales on. And as far as steels go, if you want a stainless steel, obviously my steel of choice would be Carpenter's XHP. Um, chances are blade blanks you're not going to find in XHP necessarily. Uh, Bowler M390 or some N690, your 440. You're probably going to find a lot of 440C. Um, today's 440C is not the same as 440C from 40 years ago. Steels change over time, just like 
any other commodity out there for the most part. Unfortunately, sometimes steels that have a really good reputation, they take shortcuts and something that used to be a really good steel nowadays is not so hot. So that's something to keep in mind as well. I hope this answers your question. It's gone a little long, but uh, as far as making micarta, go for it. What's really cool about making your own micarta is you can use material that maybe has some sentimental value or just something that, you know, is cool. And it's just cool that that's one more aspect of the knife that you made yourself. That's what's really neat about knife making is you can start with something very basic and you can move on to where eventually you're making your own scales, you're stabilizing your own wood, uh, you're engraving your own handles. The uh, knife making can be as simple as you want it to be or it can be as complex as you want it to be. So thank you very much. I appreciate your guys' questions. I hope you guys enjoyed it and take care. Stay sharp. This has been Patrick Rorman with mtknives.net. Have a great day. Good stuff from Patrick as always. Next, I have a question for Nicole Sauce on choosing a WordPress theme. Hello, everyone. Nicole Sauce here from Living Free in Tennessee, taking a question from Dan about WordPress themes. Dan asks, how do I find a WordPress theme that works for me? Background, I have a website blog, which I have been running for almost four years, and, and the website is littletassieprepper.com. I have used a couple of themes in my time, yet I've never really been happy with them. I have been using free themes as I don't want to pay for a theme and then find out it's not suitable for my intentions. Is there a way to find a theme and test it on my site before I decide I'm happy with it, then pay for it? The theme I'm currently using is okay, yet I would be happier if it had a few changes. Is there a way to get changes on a theme that someone else has made? Thanks so much for any assistance you can offer. Regards, Dan. Okay, first of all, Dan, thank you for asking your question the way that you asked your question. It was very easy for me to read. You just you hit it up front and then went into details. So good job there. Um, when I looked at your site, though, some sad music played in my head when I when I was seeing that you were on WordPress hosting, WordPress.com hosting. The problem with WordPress hosting is that you are limited in what you can do. So first of all, you need to get the hell off WordPress. Sorry about that. It's going to cost some money. And I've said this before. I prefer WP Engine or Liquid Web and Jack's recommendation of HostGator. All of those are fine. All of those can work and all of those will give you better flexibility in what WordPress themes you can use, what kind of plugins you can use, and in general in controlling your site. So if you're looking to grow Get the hell off WordPress. And they do cost more than what you have, but not really. WordPress's top tier hosting is $25 a month. And that's like before you can start doing anything reasonable, that's what you need to do is go to their most expensive hosting package. WP Engine is $30 a month to start with or a bit less if you work through my account. Liquid Web through our account is $12 to $15 a month paid yearly. And you already get more 
from either of those options than you will at WordPress. So, dude, move your domain away from there and get some decent hosting. It will make a world of difference for you and give you a lot more flexibility. From there, choosing a good theme is pretty easy so long as you spend time getting your content in order first. And what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is take time to define and develop content your site needs. And, I mean, you have a lot of content now, so... It's not going to be as hard for you as somebody who's looking, staring at a blank screen, right? Define what you want to achieve with your site as part of this move. Set your marketing position. Um, clarify your call to action and make sure it feeds into your sales funnel or your future sales funnel if you're not ready to deploy monetization. And then keep it simple. Keep it simple, stupid kiss, right? So I, I like to spend time thinking theoretically before I dive into themes so that I choose um, a way of organizing the information on the front page that feeds a single call to action, whether that be sign up for your email list or, you know, read this article. I mean, my, my primary call to action on my podcast site is listen to my podcast, right? So, and, and that eventually feeds into ways that people can support the podcast. Okay. And I think I've covered the, the topic of developing your content plan pretty well in other segments, as well as the recorded video from Jack's recent fall workshop, which is available on the MSB for free to you. So if you're not a member, it's a good time to sign up and check that out and all the other awesome resources he has there. Um, and that's why I'm not going to go into marketing position here. So here's what I look for in a theme though. And I usually buy my themes from theme forest for what that's worth. They usually have man all the time, but they have a, they have a good tracking system where you can find information out on how well the theme is working built into their system. And they do some quality checks, but you know, that, that is what it is. I don't worry about choosing a theme that's tailored to my industry. If I'm doing a homesteading blog, I don't do, I don't choose a theme that's homesteading focused, for example. I get that content plan and then I start looking at all the themes to see what they have that will fit what I'm doing as far as where the content lands on the, on the site. And if there's any fancy features I need, I, I either do that through plugins or I see if they're built in. I look at the number of downloads. 10 is not a good number. 10,000 is a good number. 100,000 downloads is a better number. So a theme that has lots and lots of downloads usually is something people have liked. I went over to Theme Forest and just looked at what was in their feed. And the first one I saw was like tailored to a creative agency, one download. And it might be a perfectly good theme, but if it has one download, I'm probably not going to risk it because I don't like redeploying themes and reorganizing data on my site multiple times. Number three, check the date of the last time the theme was updated. That one with one download was last updated on December 14th of this year or December 12th or something. By the way, it was probably also just launched on that day. So you want to say, was it updated a week ago, a year ago, three years ago? Sometimes you'll see something with a lot of downloads, but it hasn't been updated in years. Don't go there. You want, you want something that's vibrant and being used now. Check um, the reviews out, read the good ones, read the bad ones, read some of the medium ones. So you know what has frustrated people in the past. It's kind of like Amazon there. Like who, sometimes people are frustrated because they're stupid and sometimes they have valid critiques and sometimes those have been taken care of and you'll see replies from the developer. Um, see if their tech support forum has responsiveness. Uh, I really like the Enfold theme because they respond to forum questions really quickly. 
does the designer have a good track record? You can tell. You can like go to their profile, check it out. Test it on a mobile device. You can, they usually have demos of themes at Theme4, so you can just look at it on your phone and see if it displays. And make sure that it works with all browsers. They list which browsers it will work with. And you want to hit all the major ones so you don't have like a bunch of people on Chrome hating you. Check to see if the plugins you like to work will work on that theme. Sometimes a theme will say you can use this shopping cart, but not that shopping cart. And that's a reasonable thing for them to say. But if you are using Shopify, for example, which I hate, but if you're using it um, and it's not compatible with your theme, you don't want to buy that theme. And then, you know, uh, find out if you can buy it, if you can try it out, like find out if you can buy it and get a 30 day money back guarantee. A lot of themes have that option where they're like, try it out and we'll give you your money back if you don't like it. If it's not clear on the page selling the theme though, that there's a money back guarantee, like email the developer and just ask. Remember the answer is always no if you don't ask, right? So the things I personally like and I have yet to find a basic business website that can't be built within the parameters of either the Enfold theme or the seven theme. They are not necessarily tailored to a specific industry, but they they are very flexible, but not too flexible. They don't they don't allow you to do really stupid things on your site, like put the home button where it shouldn't be, right? So they do have a learning curve though. So they're they're gonna be harder to use than something a little simpler. On the other hand, I, I really like them. Someday I might find themes that are better than those, but I just haven't. And I have done, hmm, in the past three years with Enfold, probably been involved with 500 websites we've built on that theme. And those, you know, those are all, they look great. They're working well. The updates happen regularly. Um, both of these themes operate more like a design framework over the top of WordPress. So they have um, elements you can bring in rather than the traditional WordPress background, which you're familiar with because you have your, your blog in WordPress right now. And they both have really great tech support. So Dan, I hope that helps you get started on getting your site up to speed on a different host, right? You're leaving WordPress, right? Okay. If you, if you or anyone else wants to join our WordPress webinar series, we have just launched it this week, which is the week of December 14th. And it is not too late to catch up with the group. We are walking participants through the setup and deployment of a basic WordPress site. The webinar will be available after the course uh, as a pre-recorded course people can go through. But if you jump into this first group, you get to ask your questions live. You can sign up. Uh, and buy the course over at livingfreeintennessee.com. I have a link in the upper right corner there. It is actually offered through a different business, but I wanted to keep my segment simple. Thank you so much for the questions. Keep them coming. And Merry Christmas to you, Jack, and to all your listeners. Make it a great week. Fantastic advice is always from Nicole. I want to talk about a reason that I think some people have so much trouble getting a WordPress theme, and it's you, you don't know how to build websites. I mean, that's and, and I don't just mean the stuff that Nicole's talking about, which I think you any entrepreneur that really understands what they're trying to accomplish with their website can do everything Nicole said. No, I mean technically. And what happens is you go and you look at premium WordPress themes and you see one and you go, that's how I want my site to look. It's got a slider on it. It's all, and then you, you buy it and then you, you, you do know how you, you know, you, you're smart enough to install it in WordPress and you activate it and it don't look nothing like the screenshots or the sample site. 
And that's because themes are, they're like buying a kit. And if you don't have the skills to put the kit together, you know, think of it like Pinewood Derby model kits, right? You can buy a Pinewood Derby model kit for Cub Scouts, and five kids get the same kit, and they end up with five different cars. And one of them looks like, man, kid, I wish you had somebody in your life to help you. I know you did the best you could, but I'm, well, I'm sorry, you know. And another one's got one. It's like, my God, I know you didn't do any work at all. Your father did all that and whatever. And then maybe you find out the kid's like a savant and he did do it. That's that's how WordPress themes are. Um, you, you're looking for the functionality and the, and the components that you want it, but the way it, it looks, it's just a frame and it has to be set up and there has to be some artist work to make it actually look the way it did when you saw the demo of it. And so this is my personal advice to anybody. If you are building a WordPress-driven website for a business, go get someone who does it for a living to help you pick out a theme and develop the theme for you and put it on your site. Because you will never get it right the first time. And if you have nothing, this is back to the value of your time question I talked about yesterday. If you have done nothing else to do right now with your business and you have lots of free time and you want to know that skill set, then, then that's, that's fine. But otherwise, get to work on the business, get to work on the messaging, get to work on the content. Let somebody else, let somebody else frame it out because they can do it in a couple weeks to a couple days and it's done. And, and, and I, I would encourage you to learn how WordPress works, to be able to do your own updates, to add images, to change things. If you take advertisers to put a banner on it, all of that stuff. And that's why I love WordPress. And how to install an extension and play around with it and get it to do something you're citing you, that's all fine. But the, the way it looks and feels, you, you know, you can spend hours and hours and hours and hours. And when you're done, you look at it and go, well, use that time better. Get in touch with Nicole. I mean, that's what I'd say. Get in touch with Nicole if you need a theme done up. She does a good job on it. Uh, I may actually have her redo some components of the theme for TSP because I'll tell you that I'm not happy with how my site performs on mobile devices, and I'm not content to put like a mobile um, extension and plug-in into WordPress and then lose the look and feel of the site. I need to make the site adaptive. And I'll tell you what, if I, if, I, if I fart around with it long enough, trust me, I can figure it out. I ain't doing it. I still have no sign to do it. Here, here's what I want it to do. Make it do it. How much is it? Okay, fine. Send me a bill. Do it. Done. Because my time's better suited making podcasts, making videos, pissing people off, stuff like that, right? That's how I make money. Anyway, I don't get paid to design websites. I don't get paid to work on WordPress themes. And that's one of the things in your business you have to look at. Sometimes you have to put that sweat equity in. But what do you get paid to do in your business? If you don't get paid to do something in your business and you can get it done affordably from someone who does get paid to do that, that's called relying on a professional. Just my addition to her great advice. Next up today, I have a question for Dan Oman, and it's a very tough one for a police officer to answer. It's coming from another police officer, but I think we can learn from it too as people that have encounters with officers and maybe, unfortunately, officers like the one this first officer is asking about. Hey, guys, this is Dan Oman answering your calls regarding law enforcement matters. Today I got 
a really difficult one from John, who is a police officer. John sent me a question. As an officer, how did you handle going on calls to cover an officer that tends to escalate the scene? John went on to say he hasn't had to go hands-on with a subject because of an officer like this yet. Let me explain what John is talking about here. There are two roles that officers take when responding to a call and they're on scene. There is the role of the primary officer, and then there's the backup officer. And if there are additional officers, then really most of the other officers would take the role as backup officer. The primary officer is generally the officer who had been dispatched the call originally, but sometimes if the backup officer gets there first, the roles kind of switch and the backup officer starts handling the call and they become the primary officer. So the primary officer is the one that's handling a lot of the interaction with the either the victim, the witness, the suspect, whoever is on scene, the primary officer is generally handling that. When a backup officer arrives, the primary officer may ask the backup officer to interview someone else who is also at the scene, but that's the call of the primary officer. They're the ones delegating, they're managing the scene. They're the ones who need to collect all the information to put together the police report. If the primary officer needs help physically, then the backup officer is there. Also, as I said earlier, if the primary officer needs help with gathering statements or evidence, anything like that, the backup there, the backup officer is just there to assist the primary officer. So what John is asking about here is if he's the backup officer, he shows up on scene, the primary officer is perhaps handling the scene poorly. He is aggravating the situation. He's escalating the scene, as John put it. He's causing more tension with the citizen than needs to be. So perhaps if John had been the primary officer and gotten to the call first, there would be no conflict. The situation may resolve peacefully. But when Officer Angry is managing the call and he's the primary, the incident, which could have very potentially otherwise been very peaceful, may have a violent outcome where he provokes the other party, the citizen involved here, to the point of violence or... Uh, yelling or breaking some law, getting in the fight with police. That's the kind of thing that John is talking about here. John, this is a really difficult situation to be in as a backup officer, but you have an added element of difficulty here because you put in here in your email, you let me know that you are new to law enforcement. So as a new officer, this is extra difficult. But the other thing that you added in here that may work in your favor is that you are in your mid-40s. A lot of the guys that I saw with these anger problems that would always escalate the scene, they were generally late 20s, early 30s. They were younger, hothead types. The guys who were in their 40s and 50s and on patrol, generally these were your seasoned veterans that were not easily rattled and were not the guys causing problems on on the scene. So on one hand, you're the junior officer. When I started policing Anyone who was an officer a day longer than you were, you called them sir, especially when you're going through the training program. Seniority, how long you have been an officer, means a lot. It's very much a paramilitary system where seniority is everything. Being new, you haven't yet earned the respect of your fellow officers. You can't just necessarily speak frankly with them, tell them, hey, this is not acceptable, and expect them to listen to you and react accordingly. On the other hand, John, being in your mid-40s might work to your advantage in that the guys that are causing the problems on the scene 
are generally these younger officers, and you might be able to speak to them man to man as just a older human and and get them to listen that way. So John wants to know, how did I handle going on calls like that? Well, I had a lot of success, and it wasn't just me. I've seen other officers do this as well. Um, basically, taking over the call. If you're the backup officer, the primary officer is losing their cool or they're instigating a situation, step in and tell the primary officer that you'll take this one and take over the scene. Just say something like, hey, man, I got this one. Take out your notepad. If... If there's not imminent violence, of course, you know, obviously use your officer safety skills. But if you're able to take out your notepad, start writing down notes, start taking, asking people their names, writing down the information, get on the radio and ask dispatch for your case number and get that call assigned to you. Once you do these things, you will see the primary officer step down because you play it at the angle of, hey, man, I'm just helping you out. You have more paperwork than me or I'm all cut up on my paperwork. Let me get this one. Let me help you out. Just come at it from the angle you're trying to help them out, and generally, they will deflate. I've had really good success with that. I've seen other officers have really good success with that. It's a very subtle way of letting them know that they're out of line, but you're giving them face still. They're walking away from the situation with face intact. You're just helping them out taking over paperwork. You're not calling them out in front of people, embarrassing them, and potentially causing more of a problem. John put in the notes here that he has a background in sales before going into law enforcement. So chances are, John, you are pretty good with communication if you are closing sales deals. So afterward, talk to the officer, especially if he's a younger guy. Offer to buy him a coffee or go out for a beer, whatever it might be, and talk to him about your experience with communication and sales. Offer it as a learning experience for him. Now, the guys that I knew when I was coming up through law enforcement that had these issues, escalating scenes, they probably wouldn't be very responsive to going out and having that discussion with me being a junior officer. But again, if you're bringing life skills to the equation, they might be receptive to that. But if not, here's what the next step is. Talk to a respected FTO, and that's a field training officer for you guys that don't know, or just a senior officer on the shift. There's always the senior guy, generally well-respected. He's been on the shift a long time. Go talk to them, express your concerns, and see if they can address it, because they're the ones that need to handle that kind of situation if you're the junior officer. They need to step up, go talk to the guy, say, hey, look, this isn't cool, stop it. They can get away with chewing his butt out over this kind of stuff. You, the junior officer, cannot. So let them do it. And lastly, if the FTO or the senior officer is, is either not willing to or is just not helpful in this situation, you've got to go to your sergeant. You've got to let them know that there is an absolute safety concern for your safety as a backup officer, the, the primary officer's safety, and the citizen's safety. And keep using that phrase, safety concern, safety, safety, safety. That's the buzz phrase, safety concern, that's going to get your supervisor's attention that they're going to have to document. If you have a decent sergeant, they're going to document that to protect themselves. There's something in law enforcement called vicarious liability, and it is ingrained in every supervisor who's worth their salt. They're going to want to address this. So again, John, your best bet here, I think, is stepping in and politely taking over the scene. Just Take over. Start talking to the people involved and tell the tell the other officer that you got this one, man. Don't worry about it. I'll also add here that a lot of these guys do not last long. They're in for three to five years and they're gone. I saw so many of these guys fade out. 
these guys who are always instigating stuff are the same guys that are always complaining. They're always whining about the salaries being too bad, or they hate their sergeant. They're they're the guys who are just complaining about everything. They're the ones always walking around with the dark cloud, and they're angry about stuff. So they just don't last long. They get washed out, they get fired, or they wind up quitting because they think the grass is greener somewhere else. So as these guys are washing out through attrition, you will slowly start gaining more seniority, John. And when the new guys come in, if they start demonstrating any behavior like this that we don't want to be seeing, you'll be in a position of authority to address that. John, I hope that was helpful in some way. I really appreciate this question. I'm glad to know that you're thinking of these things. Because you've taken the time to think about this and ask this question, that lets me know you're the guy that we need in law enforcement. So thank you for your service. You know, I love Dan's advice here, but it, see, to me what this does is it points out that we do have a problem in law enforcement. There wouldn't be that great of an answer to this problem if this problem wasn't a problem. Does that make sense, right? Like, so you have a guy that, that had over 10 years of experience in law enforcement, got fed up with it, went off to raise cattle on a, on a farm. Here, here sitting here giving you a incredibly articulate, well-thought-out answer to a difficult situation. The only way that can happen is that that situation occurs and occurs frequently enough that it's a problem sufficient to need to be addressed. And, and the problem we have is we have people out there doing this job that, that are in the wrong mindset for it. And let me tell you something. I think everybody wants to look at these guys as steroid-infused, gym rat, MMA types or something. It's not them. In the end, no one goes like this when they're going through, you know, getting out of college or going into college and choosing to go into like criminal justice degree or something like that. Because most police officers, they do have college degrees. Not all of them, but most of them. They don't say when they get out of college, you know what I want to do? I want to go beat people up, so I'm going to become a cop. They don't go out and say, "I want to, I want to uh, go out and, uh, and and circumvent justice and put people that don't belong in jail in jail." They don't go out and say, "You know, I want to go give kids a bunch of shit uh, because they're partying a little bit too loud." They don't. They don't do that. I mean, there might be one or two out of a hundred that are the psychopathic bad apples that we hear about. Uh, that no matter what you did with them in training, that if they hide who they are and get through it, they are that person. The majority of these problems are because of the way the culture is and the way the training is today. We, we, I, I don't believe that officers receive enough training in de-escalation. And I do think that on the other side of that, we as citizens need to look at them and understand that every single time they pull someone over for a minor infraction, they know that person might shoot them. That is possible. But there's a problem here. There's a problem. And and I really believe all the Black Lives Matter crap and all the, the extreme examples on the other side of it are being actually trumped up by the people that don't want to let go of the power. You know, um, the blindly loyal, the bootlickers as I call them. Because if, as long as you have the, the voice of dissent on the extreme, then the... The, the status quo looks reasonable and logical. The only way we're going to get to a real conversation about fixing these issues is going to be for the voice of dissent to be calm, 
reasonable and rational and point at actual problems and refuse to, to accept a few bad apples. Because it's not a few bad apples. We just had a police officer that was acquitted of murder who shot a person wounded crawling down a highway, a hallway away from him. He, he executed the guy. And he was acquitted. This is not, a, this is not acceptable. And I wonder how many of these situations where even when, when we finally see it, we say, yeah, you know what? That, that cop had no choice in that situation. Did he or didn't he? Was the officer angry here? Did he go into a situation and escalate the situation instead of de-escalate it? And people will say, when, when a police officer tells you to do something, you just do it as long as it's you know, a reasonable request at least, you know, as long as it's not something like jump off the roof. Well, that might even be most of the time true. Except when it's, you need to let me search your vehicle. Well, no, I'm not complying with that. Does that make officer angry escalate more? Because what should the primary role of law enforcement be beyond enforcement of the law? De-escalation of the situation. And I've met cops that are really good at that. And I've met cops that are officer angry. They're exactly the opposite. They go into a situation. They demand things of people. They lie, sometimes due to their own ignorance and sometimes due to their own agendas. They tell people things that aren't true. You're not. I told you a story. Now she didn't really escalate the situation, and I was pretty reasonable with her. But a lady that lady cop told me when I shoot a pellet gun in my backyard that it was illegal to discharge in the city of Arlington, Texas. And and not being an idiot, I just said fine. I knew she was lying, but I wasn't going to have a conflict there. But yet, if I told her she was lying, what was she going to do? Where would that have went? It all depends on the individual you do. She called for backup. I got a big giant guy here who's going to hurt me with a pellet gun. Who knows what she would have done? I don't know. But she was lying to me. Now, you take that lying instead of it being a five foot six female. What if that was a six foot four inch male with a big build on him lying to me and being aggressive with me in that situation? Is that what should be going on? Should you be lying to people? We got a problem. And the reason you got great guys like Dan that did the job right that can tell you how to solve the problem is because the problem's there. We can't deny it anymore if we're going to get where we need to be in life, man. I'm sorry. Uh, next up, I have, you know how I said eight, and then I said seven, and I said, well, I'm eight, and I was confused. That's because I left John out of the John Pugliano out of the bullet points, even though I had his call cleared up, queued up, and ready to go before Paul Wheaton's call. So we have a call now for um, a question now for John Pugliano on a potential stock market correction. John, take it away. Hello, TSP listeners. Today's financial question comes from Billy. And before I get to his question, I just want to mention that I'm recording this answer on December 14th, 2017. Now, because of the holiday schedule, I'm not sure exactly when this will air and Jack will have an opportunity to play my response. But I'm going to be talking about some market time-sensitive data here, and so I wanted to put a specific date on when this is being recorded. And there's another reason, but we'll get to that in a second. First off to Billy's question, and Billy is a pseudonym, by the way. Here's what Billy asks. Given a likely correction of the stock market coming soon, what are my best options for securing my 401k and Roth IRA investments against a loss? Then Billy goes on to give me some specific details, which I won't talk about here. But I do want to give another quote. Here's what he says. Anticipating a market correction coming, I've moved everything in my 401k to the lowest risk option I have available. Now, Billy doesn't specifically tell me why he thinks there's a market correction coming and why he thinks that it's likely to occur very soon. 
So I'm going to have to make some assumptions as I answer Billy's question. But the real big point, the key point that I wanted to make, and the reason I specifically told you when I was recording this answer, is that Billy asked this question all the way back in August. It's almost four months ago, and I don't know whether Billy has sat out all this time, but if he has, then he's missed some good opportunities for his investments to appreciate because the market has not corrected over the past four months. In fact, since the end of August when he emailed this to us, the S&P 500 is up some, oh, say 200 points, which is a good 8% gain. And so before I answer Billy's specific question about what's the best way to protect his investments against a loss, what I want to point out here, and the main reason I've held this question for the last four months, is that, you know, I get these type questions all the time. I mean, any given day of the week, we can always point to some negative headline or some talking head on TV or a pessimist selling gloom and doom to us that there's an impending market correction coming. Now, back in August when Billy sent this, there was a lot of gloom and doom. We were coming into traditionally the worst performing months of the year, which generally are September and October. There was also a lot of talk about a nuclear war with North Korea. Trump had done something stupid over the summer, and I don't remember what it was, but there was also talk then of, you know, his pending impeachment or he's going to have to resign. All these negative headlines that we hear on a daily basis. And if you immerse yourself in the mainstream media, or even in the alternative media for that matter, because, you know, bad news sells. And if you try and invest or manage your investment portfolio by relying on the headlines or following what all the pundits are saying, it's been my experience that you're going to get whipsawed between the binary media messages, which are either everything's great, everything's rosy, everything's fine. You're either going to get that really positive Pollyanna view or you're going to get the exact opposite of that, which is that everything is horrible and the market is about to collapse and there's going to be a major economic catastrophe just around the corner. But that's seldom the way it really is. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of gray out there. And more importantly, there's a lot of uncertainty. And even the very best of the best economic forecasters is unable to predict the future. But you're not going to turn on CNBC and hear a commentator come on and say, hey, things are really uncertain today, and we have no idea what's going to happen in the stock market tomorrow. They never do that. So what I want to point out in Billy's email is that although there were probably a lot of scary things going on back at the end of this past summer, and he felt compelled to sell everything and go to cash, if he did that specifically because of the fear that was being perpetrated to him through the headlines, then that was a bad decision because the stock market is up some 200 points since then. And, you know, that's about an 8% return just in the S&P 500 alone. Now, I don't know. Billy might have had a really analytical, well-thought-out, rational reason for why he went to cash. I'm not faulting him for that. I go to cash all the time. In fact, it's a key component of the way my firm manages things. If I believe that the market is about to have a pullback because of the market and economic indicators that I'm tracking, if, if I believe that they point to a downturn in the economy, then it's my fiduciary responsibility to move my client's assets into something that's safer. So I'm not faulting Billy for that. But just because of the tone of his email and the way people were so panic-stricken earlier this year... I have a suspicion that Billy's movement out of equities and into a, a safer cash-like position might have been based on more emotion than on real observation of market forces that were taking place. Now, I want to point out here that I'm not specifically picking on Billy about being too pessimistic and missing out on an opportunity. Listen, I miss out on good opportunities all the time. 
Personally, for me, most recently, I've missed out on a great Bitcoin opportunity. So by no means am I purporting to say that I can predict the future and I can see every opportunity. But what I want to encourage Billy and the rest of us to do is to ignore the headlines, ignore the talking heads on TV, take everything you hear in the media, whether it be mainstream media or alternative media, take it with a grain of salt. Learn to think for yourself and develop your own situational awareness where you're specifically looking at markets and investment opportunities and your assumptions are based on real market and economic conditions, not an emotional appeal. Now, again, this doesn't mean you're always going to get it right, but at least you'll be able to overcome your biggest enemy as an investor, and that's your own human emotions of fear and greed. And so, again, specifically to Billy's question, how does he protect against an investment loss? Well, number one, ignore the headlines. Don't be overly optimistic or overly pessimistic so that you make sure that you're investing in real opportunities. And when you believe that you have an opportunity, whether it be the stock market or real estate or cryptocurrency or whatever it is, make sure that you've done your homework, you've done your due diligence, and you believe that you're purchasing an asset that's likely to be appreciating in the future. That's number one. And then number two, you're never putting all your eggs in one basket. You're going to diversify your portfolio. So no matter how good an opportunity is, remember, you need to diversify to protect your overall portfolio. And then finally, the last thing, don't be afraid to close out your position and move on to something new. If you've made a big profit, maybe it's time to sell all or some of that position and reap the profits. Or on the corollary to that, maybe if you've lost money, it's time to capitulate and realize that it's dead money and it's time to sell it at a loss and move on to a new opportunity. Well, hey, Billy, thanks for your question. I definitely can't predict the future, but in every episode of the Wealthsteading podcast, I share with you my own personal interpretation of what's going on in the stock market. And more importantly, I tell you the positions that I'm specifically invested in and what my rationale is for those investments. So if you're interested in wealth building principles, then please check out the Wellsteading podcast. Jack, I always appreciate the opportunity to answer questions here on TSP. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Great stuff from John. Uh, now I've got a call or a, a, a response, for, or not even a response, an update from Paul. We, we don't get a lot of questions from him, but every once in a while he, uh, he gives us an update of what's going on. And he's been doing a lot of stuff with rocket mass heaters. Now, He's a busy guy, and he took time in his truck while he and Jocelyn were in the truck to record this for us. And uh, he mentions it's kind of like the old days of TSP, and it's, it really was not. It was, uh, I don't know if he had the windows down or he's got really big tires or something, but it was a whole, at first, because I kind of jumped to the middle of it to listen to it, and I didn't listen to the very beginning, I thought he had recorded this standing in front of one of these, like, furnaces that he's building or some shit. It was like, <laughs> So this is not the greatest audio quality, but I did get most of that out of it. I ran it through some filters uh, and, and levelation, and some, there's some compression in it because of that. So it's a little bit tinny, but I think it's going to be a much more pleasing experience for the ears. Um, and this is a lesson. If you're going to make calls into the show or do any kind of mobile recording, and you're going to be in a vehicle, yeah, I did it for, uh, well, 18 months. But if you ever go listen to like the first four or five, they're horrible. They're worse. Well, they're as bad as the, well, they're not as bad. Is they're actually they're not even as bad as this was. But it's because I set the recorder on my lap and there wasn't a microphone. 
When I got a microphone, it got a lot better. So what you want to use is a headset, a microphone, something like that when you're calling mobile uh, because otherwise it's it's difficult to use. Because this is such great information and because it's Paul Wheaton and because we don't hear from him that much, uh, I spent about a good 30 minutes working on this one to get it playable where I, I didn't figure you'd turn it off. Anyway, uh, great content. Here you go. Paul, tell us about what's going on with your Rocket Mass Haters. Permies.com with another update from Wheaton Laboratories. I'm here with Jocelyn. Okay, so uh, Jocelyn, we're, we're driving down the road. There might be a little road noise, kind of reminiscent of the old Jack Spirico podcast. <laughs> you know, the Rewind series. Yeah. But uh, uh, we got a list, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, finishing up with the Rocket Mass Heater Workshop Jamboree. Uh, we had a few items uh, that weren't mentioned in the last update that we gave you, which was happening during the Jamboree. So one of the coolest things that came out of it is a thing that we're calling now the casserole door. So with a batch box rocket mass heater, uh, one of the problems has always been the door. Sometimes building a door for a batch box style rocket mass heater can make the whole build go three times longer. Because you've got to have a good door or else the whole thing is a horrible rocket mass heater. Uh, and so the thing that came up with such a simple, elegant design was to just take a glass lid from a casserole dish and then um, smash that into a, an opening with cob. And, and that made a door so that light gets through and uh, it works great as a, as a door on a, uh, on a batch box style rocket mass heater. It's, it's been working terrific. Now we did have a variation of it up at Allerton Abbey, and I want to talk more about that one, where we put a casserole door on, and it broke. And then we put another one on, and it broke like 10 minutes later. And so we're making modifications to that, and we're going to retest all of that uh, real soon. But uh, the one that is down uh, inside the red cabin has been run for, I don't know, 20, 30 hours without a problem. And that's with um, donkey cyclone design, what they're yeah. calling the cyclone. And uh, so we've got uh, uh, different kinds of glass that we're going to try. Um, you know, of course, uh, borosilicate glass works much better uh, with temperature changes than soda glass. And there's another kind of glass that's kind of that amber glass that uh, you, you see sometimes for cookware. But we're going to we're gonna do some experimenting with all of this stuff and find out what works best. But this whole thing with the casserole door is amazing. Right. It's a big leap forward. Now, another big problem with rocket mass heater batch box style is that it looks a lot like a conventional wood stove. Um, but if you load the wood into it like you would with a conventional wood stove, it won't work correctly. So we kind of need to get past some of these problems. We call it the Gilligan factor, where you have a, a perfectly lovely, a well-intentioned person that's quite smart, but they don't yet know all the ins and outs of using a rocket mass heater and what kind of errors might those kinds of people make. So uh, uh, one of the problems is is that if you put the wood all the way to the back of the box, that it would plug um, where the air goes into the riser uh, because there's kind of a slot in the back of the batch box uh, style rocket mass heater. And so if you block it, then the system doesn't work correctly. So Peter Vandenberg has come up with what he's calling the double shoebox style, and that fixes that problem. Now, there's still two other problems to, to solve besides the door and blocking the back wall, right. but 
The double shoe box has now been fully tested up at Allerton Abbey and outside of the problem with the door. Uh, the casserole door. Casserole lid door. Right, yeah. the casserole door, which the, we had two lids break and we got to try a different style of lid there. And I think we're going to continue with that. We've got some ideas for modifications. Uh, it's working great. And there's a lot of other glass in the system, so you can really see the flames. And, and batch box style has typically a lot of glass uh, in those systems, whereas the old J-tube style, which I want to point out, J-tube style rocket mass heaters have uh, been the standard for a very good reason. They work extremely well. They're built very, very fast. And there's just a long list of strong upsides to the J-tube style rocket mass heaters. So it's, I think it's still our standard. I think that the, the batch box is the future of rocket mass heaters but it's, uh, it's not yet a, a slam dunk win. All right, what's next? Uh, Uncle Mud's bun warmer. So we've got, we had something we called the ring of fire, where you can kind of sit on it uh, in a circle and see a fire and not get smoke in your face, and your butt would be warmed. And uh, um, we've, we've taken that apart. We've taken that out because um, it stopped working. And, um, and we, you know, lots to say about that. But moving on to the bun warmer, basically it's a replacement. And we're using uh, a lot of stratification chamber stuff in the bun warmer. And uh, it's been working great, although we do want to make it look prettier. But it's been built. It's tested. It's working It's working really well. Okay. Uh, cottage styles next? Yes. Okay. Uh, cottage style. Well, the last time I talked to you on the expert council, uh, we mentioned uh, the cottage style rock batch, uh, the set of batch box, cottage style rocket mass heater which is a J-tube style. It's very compact, fits all in the barrel. And the idea is, is that whatever's the most important to you is what you mount on top of the barrel. So it could be an oven, and then you would have a rocket oven and a heater. Uh, it could be a mass of about 400 pounds that you would heat to a very high temperature, and it would hold that temperature. Um, or it, it could be a different kind of a cook stove, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a broad collection of different things that could be mounted on top of that, and you could even design it in such a way that you could swap those pieces out. Uh, we put it into a shop, and so we actually added a second barrel to wrap the exhaust into uh, in order to try and extract more heat before shooting it out the, the, the roof. Right. So those were the final updates from the Jamboree, and you also wanted to mention... Um, oh, yeah, the, the 0 0.60 cords of wood last winter. Yes. So last winter in the house, in the Fisher-Price house, the house that you have been in, Jack, uh, we have a rocket mass heater in there, and we had a bunch of people, like, the year before I said, uh, yeah, I heated uh, my house in Montana, three-bedroom house, with about a half a cord of wood for the whole winter. And a lot of people were, like, bitching and whining that, that that's impossible. So what we did was, is we extremely carefully measured last year. We kept the temperature indoors on average of about 69. It was a particularly cold winter last winter. And at the end, it was 0 0.60 cords of wood. And this is for a three-bedroom, double-wide, you know, modest house, uh, 1,400 square feet. No enclosed porches. No, we didn't. We don't even have winter curtains. Right. So, so not. Uh, yeah. So that's that's great. Now, um, you can see the full build of that pebble-style rocket mass heater on the Betterwood Heat 4 DVD set. Yeah, and so that's been out now for over a year. 
Um, and uh, it's been received really well. The previous four DVD set was just a giant doofus in overalls with a can porter, um, which people still seem to like that. I yeah. mean, but the new four DVD set covers, I think, like a dozen Rocket Mass Heater builds, and, and it's been received way, way better. I mean, we've focused so much more on quality in that new 4DVD set, but it includes Pebble Style. There's three Pebble Style Rocket Mass Heater builds in the 4DVD set, and this is one of them. Right. So, so yeah, and, and as people probably know, you also have the World Domination Gardening DVD, and uh, there is a single version of the Cub Style DVD, and you have the Permaculture Playing Cards. Those. Oh, yeah, geez, this is the time of year. It's like the last two weeks, I think we sold 2,000 decks of playing cards. They're yeah. stocking stuff for kind of a thing. I mean, the big reason we made it was so that for Christmas you could hand a deck to somebody and then they'll think you're less crazy for love and permaculture. Right. It explains it. But better than that is the digital market at permies.com. <laughs> so permies.com, I, I mean, because it's a lower carbon footprint of gift giving. I, you gift like gift. this. You like yeah. the digital market. Yeah. So permies.com slash market, right? And then the idea is, is that you can buy the digital content as a gift for somebody. Yes. And it'll what it'll do is uh, you go and you buy it as a gift and it'll give you a URL and you can give as a short URL yeah. like permies.com slash G slash number, number, number. And then you can uh, pass it on uh, to your friends. Either put it on a piece of paper and put it in their stocking or email it or whatever you want to do. And it's like not just me. It's Ernie and Erica's uh, Rocket Mass Heater Plans. Uh, Sergey Botenko has a whole bunch of stuff about wild edibles. Uh, Robert Kurek has Roots Demystified and a bunch of other gardening things. Yeah. But, and there's a bunch of people with chicken stuff and, and people I don't even know that have a bunch of digital market stuff out there. So support your homesteaders and your permaculture enthusiasts. Right. Trying to do um, this this agile income and, and support their homesteads. And we're out of time. Thanks, Jack. Bye, Jack. So time for my segment today. This comes from David, and David says something that makes me feel really bad for him. Um, but it's also very topical. He says, Jack, I have just been accused of an awful thing and was arrested Friday. Monday they had me plastered all over the news. I have already started receiving harassment via social media. I'm almost afraid to go pub go into public anywhere. Um, people at work are ignoring me. Could you say something to the listeners about the difference between being accused and arrested versus being convicted? Now, I mean, I don't know this guy at all. I, this is the first time I've heard from this listener ever. I don't know if he did what he was accused of doing. Um, though I probably could use his email to figure out who he is and look him up and figure out what he's accused of. I decided not to because I don't want to be guilty of, of any kind of uh, inference that the guy's guilty without. I mean, because I know what I know, and 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 it seems genuine. I don't know that that this guy would reach out to me and ask me to do this this way if uh, if he was guilty of something horrible. And I know it's a horrible accusation because he says it's horrible. And I do think we live in a world today where when someone's when we we hear that someone supposedly did something, we immediately tend to side with the state. And I'd like you to think about how kind of messed up that is in our world. We generally don't trust government, and we don't trust the state. 
And then we turn around when somebody's been arrested and accused of something because it happens to be something really bad to assume that they did do it or it's likely they, or they did something or this wouldn't happen like as though you can never be falsely accused. Well, I can tell you you can be falsely accused. It's it's not happened to me like this way with legal issues and stuff, but I mean I was one time when I was a very young man, I was falsely accused of being a father of a child with a woman that I never had the type of relationship that would result in a child. And this is long enough ago that you know, it wasn't real easy to go get a DNA test or anything like that. And what ended up proving that it was a lie was this was during my military service. And when it, when it turned out as to when this, this child would be due, she would have had to have a gestation period of 13 months for me to have been in the United States when she got pregnant. Now, I've always thought back to, my, to that and thought to myself, what if, what if that wasn't the case? Would have anybody have believed me? Because it started out, you know, you're some dirtbag that won't take care of your kids and stuff like that. What the hell are you talking about? I've never done anything with this girl that way. Well, she says you did. Well, that doesn't mean I did. And... I think that if you've ever been in a position where you were like the accuser legitimately was lying, but other people believe them, you have a whole new different way to look at this. To me, if if you're going to tell me somebody did something, you're going to have to show me evidence. And it's also the case that I believe there could be times where a person feels something happened, but they, they, they didn't. And these all of these allegations of sexual abuse that are coming out lately and the whole Me Too campaign and whatever. Um, if you don't think there's people out there that will say horrible things about somebody to be part of something, um, you just don't understand the human condition. And I, and I do think there's, you know, we're getting to the case where some of these things might be like a couple people were at an office party. They were both drunk. They took a cab ride home together. One tried to kiss the other one. The other one didn't want it. And that was it. But now it's sexual harassment. Well, that's not sexual harassment. That's a failed attempt at starting something. Like if somebody's holding somebody down, it's not totally different. If someone's told no and they don't, uh, they don't respond to the rebuff. But I mean, we're getting to a point now where if a guy asks a woman out and she's not interested, it's sexual harassment. Well, I, my response to that would be, well, why isn't it sexual harassment when somebody asked you out that you did want to go out with? How does the person know until they ask you? That type of thing. I look at what's going on, what went on in Alabama with Roy Moore. Is the guy guilty? I don't know. And the truth is, I won't comment on my opinion of his guilt because I don't live in Alabama, and I knew that I had no authority on this decision and that nothing I did was going to change the outcome. So I have not wasted my time in something outside of my sphere of influence. So I have not looked deeply enough into it to form an opinion on whether I believe the man is guilty or not. I do have an opinion about whether I think the average person in Alabama believes that he's guilty, and I think they do. And I think there's a lesson here that's political, and I'll, I'll go to the side for it for just a second. The left is just so overwhelmed with themselves right now. They're so happy. that This proves the limits of what Donald Trump can do. This proves actually how weak the left is. I believe the majority of people in Alabama are convinced there's something to these allegations because that's how accusing somebody works. And even with a situation where people are convinced the guy is a pedophile, the, the Democrat won by like 1% of the vote. 
That's not a landslide victory. So I think that all these foretellings of the demise of the GOP and all, there could be something that does that. It actually would make a lot of sense politically for that to happen, but it, you, you don't see it yet. But back to that, like, so this guy's life is destroyed by accusations. Do we have evidence? I'm not going to comment there, but I'll tell you where we don't have evidence. And he's not my favorite person. You probably know where I'm going to go. Donald Trump. There's like 19 women that have accused this guy of some kind of sexual assault or inappropriate behavior or whatever. Do you know the first time anyone ever said that it was 2016? They're all from 2016 and more recently. The guy's a billionaire. He's in the public eye for over 40 years. No one accuses him of nothing. And then all of a sudden, all these accusations come out. Like He walked into the, the, the beauty pageant where we were all naked, and it's one girl from one year. Well, what do you think there'd be another 30, 40, 50 of these women saying it happened? And I don't know if it did or it didn't. I know this. When you show me evidence that someone did something, then I'm a lot more likely to believe that they did it. Someone accusing somebody of something is not evidence. It's not evidence at all. And, and we are entering a world where I think people actually feel like they've joined a club when they accuse somebody of something. Whatever that thing is in the moment. So right now it's sexual abuse and sexual harassment, right? That's what it is right now. And, and I, I think there's two sides to this. I do believe that in some level the number of people coming out is because they feel more comfortable coming out. And some of them are legitimate and absolutely the case. And I think some of them are bullshit. I think they're complete bullshit. They're made-up fabrications. I don't really know. And I think some of them are, there's probably something there, but it's probably not the terrible thing it's being made out to be. You can be inappropriate with somebody, and it makes you somewhat of a pig. It doesn't make you a, 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 someone that chronically assaults people. It doesn't make you uh, a pedophile. It doesn't make you, you know, anything. I mean, if you want to talk about somebody that's got some creepiness to the way that he behaves around young girls, look at Vice President Joe Biden. I mean, it's... But I don't, I don't necessarily think that that means that the guy is a pedophile. I just think it means he's a creep. And it, so then, then you're down to decide whether you want to associate with or hire or work with or vote for a creep. But there's a difference between a creep... And a person who actually is out victimizing people. I, I mean, that's, and I, I do think we got to get back to if you're going to tell me somebody did something and you want me to believe it, you're going to have to show me more than choreographed bullshit. You know, I, I really do. I, and I think that's how we should always be. And I think that, you know, you're accused of doing something like that. It's one thing for people to say, you know what, I'm not going to have anything to do with this person until I find out. And that sucks for the person if they're falsely accused. But when we start like harassing people, picketing their house, going after them on social media, and you don't know, let me ask you a question. How screwed up is it that you're ruining somebody's life for something they didn't do? Isn't the fact that they've been accused of it, especially if they've been arrested and they're going to face charges, isn't it enough to let that play out? Don't you think that does enough to destroy their life before you dogpile on it? Now, there is the other side. When you know they did something really horrible, I can understand people's outrage. I can. But unless you saw it happen or you've seen concrete evidence, 
then you don't know. And when you jump in somebody's shit, who's just a regular person like you, I can't imagine what it would be like to be accused of something I didn't do that is currently like the worst thing you could do. I can't imagine what it would be like to be accused, for instance, like, you know what it was, it was three months ago? Racist. You're a racist. You're a racist. They, they beat that drum so hard, they don't they almost mean anything anymore. But could you imagine being accused of something like he was in the Ku Klux Klan when you don't even, you never even known somebody that was, and you don't think shit like that happens. And then it's one thing to be accused of it, but when you're accused of it to a point where like the people you work with and you know, know that you're accused of it and start treating you differently. We really need to reserve judgment on these situations. And again, I understand basically, hey, I'm going to take two steps back until I find out what's going on. Totally get that. But actively screwing up somebody's life because you think you know something you don't know? That's not America, guys. That's not innocent until proven guilty. That's not innocent until proven guilty. And people that do it should be ashamed of themselves. They really should. Anyway, with that, we've come to the end of another episode. I hope you did enjoy it. We certainly had a lot of variety today. That's what I strive for, especially on the Friday shows and the Monday shows, to get a bunch of variety in for you guys. Anyway, um, if you like the show and you want to support us, one of the super easy ways to do that is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. And every day there, I also have items up for review, and they're all broken down by categories. You can see my, my past reviews. Today's item is a new item, for review anyway. It's an item I've been using quite a bit. And uh, I'll tell you what it is, but I'm going to have a special celebrity guest tell you what today's item of the day is. T.L. Gray, hot. And, of course, that is Captain Jean-Luc Picard. The item of the day really isn't tea Earl Grey hot, but it is Earl Grey tea. It is made by Davison's Teas, which is an organic manufacturer of teas or provider of teas. And uh, you've probably recognized their name because I've recommended many of their other products because they're just that damn good and that good of a deal. This is about a pound of Earl Grey tea for 15 bucks. To make a cup of tea, you use a teaspoon of tea. So you might imagine you get a lot of those uh, tea Earl Grey hots out of one bag of Earl Grey tea. And it's a fantastic quality tea. And I'll tell you how I like to make it. I, I make it with a French press. I also occasionally, if I only want one cup, I'll make it with, with a tea infuser. And boiling water over it, steep for three minutes, and then either remove the infuser or push down the French press. I wanted to stop and say something about French presses that I, I think a lot of people don't really realize. The way a French press works is it actually excludes it actually excludes the exchange when it's pushed down. And if you've ever made tea and you let the tea bag sit in there too long or the tea sit in the infuser too long, it gets especially like a black tea like Earl Grey, it gets really tannic and really strong. So when you actually push the plunger down in a French press and you like pour one cup out of it, and let's say your French press holds three cups, and you go back 15 minutes later for another cup, it doesn't get that way. So anyway, you make your tea, boiling water, steep three minutes, push the plunger down the French press, pour it into your glass, a little bit of stevia, and a little tiny squirt of lemon juice, like a quarter of a lemon wedge squeezed into it. I just think it's one of the best things to start your morning with and one of the best things to end your day with, honestly. Um, it does come in decaf, too. I don't do decaf. I do, caf I do 
uncaffeinated teas, like teas that never had caffeine. I have never had coffee or tea, something that's had caffeine removed for it, and I still approve of the flavor. If I ever find it, I'll let you know, but uh, no. And they do make it in tea bag form if you prefer that. You can get like a hundred of them for, I don't remember, I think it's like 14 bucks. But the best deal and the best quality is the full one-pound bag. Again, Davidson's Earl Grey bulk tea. And what does Earl Grey mean? I was, I was supposed to tell you that today. So there's a, 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 an orange called bergamot orange. And they extract the oil from the peels. And these usually grown like in places like Italy and Greece is where this orange grows. And then they spray the tea with this orange oil. And it gives it that quality that only Earl Grey has, that I guess Mr. Picard likes so much. Um, but you would think it tastes orange-ish then. It doesn't really taste orange to me. It's like this velvety pugnancy. It's it's its its, it's own thing. And... I've only ever tasted one other thing similar to it, and that's when you make tea with bee balm in it. And bee balm is called wild bergamot. Now, they're totally different things, and the, the components of them are different, too. I mean, I've looked into the chemistry. They're, they're, there's, there's no real overlap between the two. But yet, they have that same velvety quality. And that's my guess as to why they call bee balm or Mernarda Wild Bergamot. That's my guess. Anyway, check it out. Davidson's Earl Grey Bolt Tea, all organic and free trade, and you can find it at tspaz.com, and you can find all of my past reviews there. And every time you go through tspaz.com before you shop online, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that I do right here for you. Also today I put out a post. You might want to check out the blog and just scroll down at the Survival Podcast. The, the video I mentioned yesterday with the property walk, I posted an update to that video as well. I posted a video, Justin Rhodes, right, the chicken ninja, who took the bus tour across every state in America he went to in the bus uh, to, to show you know people doing permaculture and agriculture all over the country. And he came here a couple weeks ago and did a great like 16-minute mini documentary on my property. Very high production value. Very, very well done. That's in the post, too. So I've got those three videos up on the blog for you. That brings us to our song of the day. And I have no deep, thoughtful things about the song of the day today. We're getting toward Christmas time. So it's time to play some Christmas music. But, you know, I got John Adam doing the music programming for me, so it won't be your conventional Christmas music. It will be George Thorogood and the Destroyers with Rock and Roll Christmas to send you off on a Friday. With that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or if they don't. Hey, man, what are you doing? Hey, man, how you doing, man? I know it's good, man. What are you doing? I'm getting ready for Christmas, man.